it's about stepping out of your comfort zone. Be prepared to not get it right, but be prepared to get back up and go again. And don't let the fact that you didn't get it right first time become everything in your life now. Hi, I'm Katrina Blowers, and you're listening to Claiming Your Confidence, conversations where we pull back the curtain on what it takes to live your most confident life. I'm a journalist and TV newsreader, and of all the people I've interviewed over the years, I can tell you confidence isn't something any one of them was born with. So what separates those who refuse to let that self-doubt hold them back? Let's find out. I so enjoyed this chat with Billy Billingham, who you might know from the TV show SAS Australia. We spoke while he was in hotel quarantine in Sydney ahead of his Australian tour, where he told me all about his tough upbringing in a UK council estate, running with gangs as a kid and then joining the British Armed Forces at 16. I was actually 13 when I left school. The age of 11 was when I... um... First, I was got in a lot. I got in a lot of trouble. From the age of nine, I started going rogue. Eleven, I was getting in trouble with the police. And I actually ended up Billy in served for nearly two decades in the SAS. He was awarded the Queen's Commendation for bravery. He did tons of brave stuff, including jumping out of a lot of planes into war zones. And then he became a celebrity bodyguard to stars, including Tom Cruise, Michael Caine and Brad and Angelina. And we talk about all of that. And I remember being on one red carpet with and she looked a million dollars and the film was great. You know, all the report about was how she had chewing them stuck on the bottom of her $3,000 shoes. In this episode, we also talk about how it's never too late to turn your life around, how to get the confidence you need to step up to extraordinary missions like freeing hostages and why his life motto is always a little further. So here is the super fun Billy Billingham on claiming his confidence. Billy, I'm so thrilled to have you joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. It's an absolute pleasure to be able to talk to you. Now, a lot of people feel like they do know you already after watching you on TV and seeing you in action. But for those who don't, uh, you're right now you're sitting in quarantine in a hotel in Sydney. Uh, <laughs> tell us a bit about what your life involves now, what would you call yourself when you've got to put the occupation thing on your uh, your form when you're flying into the country? You know what? That, that, that's a good question. It's one of those. It's one of those things that the you sit on the plane. We all look at you and go, "What do we write? What what am I?" <laughs> I, mean, I used to just put consultancy because most of my work was, you know, when I, you know, either military or left the military was security based or that sort of stuff, you know, or. Um, sort of business development, and I just used to put consultancy, and I think I still do. Sometimes I put security, sometimes I put um, consultancy. It's weird trying to put entertainment because people go, what do you do? Who do you entertain? And you're like, I don't want to get into that. <laughs> so it's, it's a question. I actually put consultancy because we're sort of jack of all trades. We're doing a bit of this. you know. We're not actors. We're um, advisors. Yeah. So, you know, although I have done a bit of acting, and I'm an author now. And so what do you do? You go, oh, I've done this, I've done that. 
You know, when I was reading about your background, I was thinking to myself that 11-year-old kid who who left school, which is mind-boggling to think that you left school at that age, if you could go back in time and take that kid by the shoulders and just tell him all the things that you've done in your life, do you think that kid would believe you? No, probably not. You know, it wasn't until I sat down and started writing my memoirs because I never, I had no intention of writing a book. It was only because my kids, I'd be out having a drink with my mates and, and the kids would join us later on in the evening and, and the, the lads would be telling certain stories and jokes and what. And at the end of it, my daughter just go, Dad, you haven't told us any of this. How come you've never told us this? So I write it down. So when I was writing it down, I was going, oh, my God, I remember this. It was actually 13 when I left school. The age of 11 was when I um, first I was got in, a lot, I got in a lot of trouble. From the age of nine, I started going rogue. 11, I was getting in trouble with the police. And I actually ended up in court, juvenile court, at the age of 11 for ABH, GBH, all sorts of stuff. I was really going rogue. And then at 13, I say I left school. I didn't leave school. I got expelled from school, but I never really... Went back. I only used to go back once a week, every couple of weeks, to play in the football team, get picked. And um, you know, I, and the reason I talk about this, and, and I put it in the book, and I talk on my tour about it, because people need to learn from it. People can go, you know what? I can relate to that. Not to say it's a good thing. These are all my life's about trials and tribulations, and what I got right, what I got wrong. I, I, I talk to, and they are young audience. Some of them, they say, you know, I wasn't clever doing what I did, but it takes a while to realise when you look back on life and go, what a clown I was at that time. I mean, I've been fortunate and uh, I've got to where I've got to, you know, but that's through perseverance and also gravitating towards the older generation as I went through my life and learning lessons and sort of remembering them, you know. So that's what I would say. I'd, I'd tell the kids, you know, it, it, it's you've got to get an education and, you know, everything else you can do after that. You can still be a bit of a boy, a girl, a bit rogue if you want to, but education is paramount. And I had to catch up all that when I got into the army, you know, when people were going off parachuting, enjoying parachuting and doing stuff, I was in a classroom sweating like I'd just run a marathon because I couldn't add two, two and two together. I was like, oh, gee, I ain't much better now, but <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> so who was it that kind of um, influenced you? There must have been a particular person or maybe a couple of people who who had faith in you when the rest of the world didn't. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I allude to this massively. And if anybody reads my book, I start off where my problems, not started, but where the first influential person who I really met outside of my family. My dad was a very influential man. He's a big old six-foot tough guy. He just couldn't control me because you'll know as well, you know, your son probably gets away with whatever he wants to get away with because we can with parents. And I, I did. And, and we came from a very poor family. Mum was always working 12 hours. And when she was in, Dad was out for 12 hours. So couldn't control me. So as I went through this journey of being naughty, nine years old, I stole a hat, as I, I alluded to in the book. And the old guy who chased me, he was about 70 years old, and he caught me. And he stood in front of me like a big old bear. And I thought, oh, here we go. I'm going to get a good idea, which I expected. And he didn't. He just spoke to me. He said, and I, I'm not going to swear, but I'll tell you what he said. He goes, you, you little shit. He goes, there's something about you. He goes, keep the hat, come to my boxing club. And you forget, of course, I'm going to agree to it because he's got me cornered in a, in a, you know, where I can't get away, I'm going to get a slap. So I threw the hat to him and ran. But I went to that boxing club. So you imagine your son at nine years old coming to you and say, I'm just going downtown, Mum. And it's February, it's pitch black outside, dark, winter, snow on the ground, and I'm going to meet an old man behind a public house who was going to give me a slap in. Imagine telling me that now. <laughs> <laughs> and I was 
Well, something said to me, go. And I went. Anyway, long story short, I know I'll drag on a little bit. So he took me to one side in the boxing gym, and I was petrified. I didn't know what to expect. And he led me into this building. I'm right behind him thinking, what's going on? You know, didn't know what was going to go on. And then as he opened these doors, there's all these other kids, roughly my age. And it was all the kids off the council estate. And this was illegal, you know, and it was a very rough, it was just an open area where he was doing. And I thought, okay, this is all right. And he took me to one side and he, he goes, look, listen to me. He says, boxing is not a sport of brutality. It's a sport, it's a poor man's game of chess. He says, let me explain it to you. It's about thinking. It's about being one step ahead, anticipating the next move, reading the problems in front of you, stepping around and having a solution. He says, always going a little bit further. Never be afraid. And, and I swear to you, and I remember. Amazing. I carried that through my life. And so he was the first person who really influenced me. And he kept me on the straight and narrow. When I was at the gym, obviously I wasn't in trouble. But, and he was a wonderful, wonderful man, you know. And to this day, I can't remember his, his full name or anything. He's obviously way, way past on now. And then the second one uh, was a guy called Matt Gaunt, who ran the local army cadets, military cadets in, in the town. And I was about 11 then. Really rogue now, and I, I was, I was, I joined the case because of my elder brother said, "Hey, do this," and I thought, "I'll try it," and I went, and I just gravitated towards discipline. And Matt go and talk, talk to us kids like we were men. You want to step out of line, you will pay the consequences. He went, but he was old fashioned. This is you will do, it. and I, I, I went right. I got this, got it. And the thing I loved about it was, and this is where. I kind of balanced school against what I was learning in, in this cadets. And what I was learning in the cadets made sense to me. You know, I was learning how to do first aid, how to save someone's life. I could see that. I could do it. As opposed to dotting the I's and crossing T's in the classroom. Thought, that doesn't make sense. What's that going to do for me? This makes sense. So that's why my schooling really started. So I was gravitating this way. So Mac really was a massive influence. And I, I, I owe a lot to Mac. And so do a lot of people from my my areas we grew up poor kids he helped probably hundreds of kids to get out of trouble and into jobs mainly into the forces including two of his own kids you know he was a wonderful wonderful man so mark was the second most influential man in my life and then but i always remember gravitating towards old men when i was working in a factory at 15 right totally illegal there was an old guy called joey taylor he was about 75 years old should have been working he was working getting a little bit of cash in hand scars everywhere but lovely old man and i just used to love sitting in my Wellington, stinking like whatever, listening to him and the rats running about this dirty old factory and he'd be telling me the stories about military and what I need to do. And what, what kind of factory was this? It was an electroplating factory, which was it, it basically where you take raw metal in and turn it into shiny things, you know, but you have to put it through an, an acid process, a caustic soda. It's, it was dangerous, but I loved it. But I, my point is I used to gravitate towards old men, old people. Which we can't do these days. We're too scared to do. We've lost all that that way of life. <laughs> you know, and somebody Yeah. If you're yeah, no. Parkless, for example, if I'm sat in the park just chilling out and a football comes rolling to me, before I kick it to anyone, I look and go, Where's the kids and where's his parents? Do you know what I mean? That if that kid come up and spoke to you, you'd be like, Oh, mm. we've lost him, which is crazy. But I used to do that. I'd sit for hours with old people. And the reason I did it, I wasn't intellectually smart, but I was, I was street smart and I knew these guys have been through the circle of life. They've been, you know, thinking they're tough. They've been knocked down. They've got back up. They've got married. They've got divorced. They've had finance. They haven't had finance. They've gone through the whole circle of life. And, and I'd listen, and I'd take chunks of it. And, of course, you still, you know, it's when somebody says, oh, don't touch that. It's all. You still just have a little dabble, don't you? You just can't help it. 
So I still did little bits and pieces of getting into trouble, but I kind of guarded myself massively because of the experience of my older sort of people that taught me. So that was it. So you mentioned, it's amazing, you mentioned you were in the cadets and then you ended up in the parachute regiment. How did, how did that happen? I, again, I got to the point where I knew how to get into the military. I was getting in a lot of trouble. I just got stabbed at the age of 15, nearly died. And that was a turning point. You know, as well as I was crawling back to, to the house, bleeding to death, I thought, if I get through this, I've got to stop. I've got to stop this craziness. And I'd already sort of gravitated towards the military, and I applied to join as a junior leader, which means you know, I could go in at 16. But I had an accident in between that, and I couldn't go in. You know, I burnt all the skin off my legs in this factory that I was working. So I couldn't go in as a junior leader. So I had to wait till I was 17, till all that healed up. And then I joined the army, and... I just needed, I had to get out of my own town. I had to get out of the life and the rut that I was in. I needed something different and I needed discipline. I needed to be around men who were tough, not just men who thought they were tough. So mm. I joined the army and I got to the parachute regiment and I always never, never forget it. And I know we talk about confidence, but this is where really my confidence started to firstly kick in and realize actually I couldn't be somebody. And I turned up in Aldershot, which is in, near London, and there's 70 of us, 70 all joining on the same day. And, and I, I remember standing on this row in the square, looking down and thinking, what have I done? They all looked <laughs> massive to me. They were all, some had moustaches, some had big tattoos, big arms. And I was a skinny little kid from Walsall in the West Midlands. You know, <laughs> the biggest part of me was my mouth. <laughs> looking down thinking, oh my God. But in the back of my head, I goes, I used to say to myself, you've got to do this for you. You have to prove yourself to be someone now. And you have to do it for your parents. I want to do it for my family. And I've just got to do it. And it was tough. And I remember I felt I'm out of my league. I know I'm out of my league. But I looked down the line. And after about three or four days, the next time I looked down the line, it was 10 of those people gone. But I was still there. And I started to grow in confidence and believe in myself. I'm here. Mm. I should be here. But I was still, you know, mm. still frightened, still struggling like everybody else. And it was hard. And as that time went on and went on, I started to really grow in confidence. I started to have a voice. I started to give my opinions where it was asked for, you know. And, yeah, it was, and it was an amazing time. And out of 70 of us that joined, seven of us passed originals. And I was not only an original and the youngest and the skinniest, I, I was what they call the champion recruit. I was the one that was the best of the best. At that time, and I could never believe I'd got there because all I'd ever heard in my early years was fail. Every time I did do anything in school, any exam fail, fail. The only time I really heard the word passed is when I went through this training, past that that stage, past that. And I, and I just went, you know what? I'm better than this. I can. I'm, I'm going to be somebody. Do you reckon that's why you went and you succeeded on all of those super risky missions is because early on in life you just had nothing to lose? It's, it's absolutely that, Katrina, because, you know, I, and an element of my background, my, my uh, personal life, my military life has kept, I've used a, a pinch of every, every bit of that ingredient on every operation I've been on because no operation is the same. And it's that streetwise kid who ain't afraid to take a risk with precaution, of course, who will, you know, at the time when the chips are down, look confident, although I'm probably not. You know, so I always pass it as the, the duck scenario. On top of the water, the duck's gliding. That's me. But I don't show it. And I'm like, you know what? And I'll get through it. And at the end of the day, I go, how did I do that? 
<laughs> and it works. And it works for a reason. And, and a lot of it is down to drawing back on those experiences because there's no substitute for experience. You have to have been through, you know, a certain amount of things to be able to use it and talk about it. We can all pick up a book and read and be, think we're experts and sound like experts when it comes down to it. There is no substitute yeah. experience, and and that, and as I went through all these missions and stuff, and it did all that sort of came back to me a bit of it, a bit of there. Now, how's this scenario reading? What do I need to do? And there's always an element of now I've got to find something. Some I've got to dig deeper. I've got to find something else now to to finish this off to get to where we need to be. And, but you know, the building blocks to get to that point and make that last decision. It was all my history, all my past, where I learned, you know, from those tough days for growing up and the people I spoke to. And One of the things that I read about you was that you had to use yourself as bait to uh, capture, was it someone from the IRA? Am I remembering this correctly? What was going through your head there and, and how did that all unfold? I mean, it sounds loose. You know, most people go, is he mad? Is he stupid? It's not. It's, it, listen, it's sometimes you've got to do take a risk for the greater gain. And that's probably one of the best examples I would be able to give you. I didn't go out there to try and get shot. I didn't want to get shot. There was a possibility I was going to get shot, for sure. And the only way we could capture this person, this person had killed 13 people, innocently murdered 13 people, and he was getting away with it. And we couldn't catch him. He was too sneaky, too too much of a coward is what it was. He never shot himself. Anyway, this went on for a number of years. So we the way we knew he was out to kill somebody else, and he just killed somebody literally a week and a half before, and we were there when that happened. It was sickening, and we needed to get him. We needed a bait. We needed somebody else, and everybody else was locked down. Didn't want to get on the ground. We didn't want to risk it. And we come up with an idea and a plan. Let's do it, and I'll I'll be the bait. I will be. I'll be the one. So you, you suggested this. <laughs> well, you know, it was planned amongst all of us, you know. Yeah. We had to. Somebody's got to do it or, or we're going to have another death and another death and eventually might, we might get lucky. So that was the plan. And, um, you know, the, the thing about this is you talk about trust and confidence, which we talk on our SES election. It's based on, we don't just say it. You've, you've really got to rely and trust in each other and trust in yourself. And that I had 100% trust in my comrades to be in the right place at the right time do the right thing once this went down. And, and it's a classic case, you know, Katrina, when everything, you, you plan for it, you get out, you go, here we go, and your heart's trying to climb out your mouth and you're moving and you, you know you, you, somebody's got you in the side, someone's going to come. If you ain't look, if, you, if you're unlucky, that's the last you're going to know about it anyway. But yeah. in the back of your mind, you just think, right, the guys are out there, I know they're out there, and you've got communications. And of course, what happens? Ten seconds before it's all going to go down, the communications break down. You lose the signal. And of course, oh, that happened. So I'm now stepping into the, the death zone thinking, shit, do I just go to ground? And I thought, we've got to get him. And I was all I kept thinking is, if we get him, we're going to save so many lives. We're going to get him. We're going to get him. And I was going from my head, and I'm just going, oh. and, and then all of a sudden, you know, back into comms, and boom, all hell broke loose. And, yeah, it worked. I've spoken to other people who've been in the SAS and they've talked about strategies that they use before they go into high-risk situations like this, like they visualise all the different outcomes and really feel into the feeling of being there and, um, you know, some people meditate. What what did you do? Were you doing any of that? I slept, I had a drink or just Just winged it. Listen, every situation, you, you can plan and plan. The more you plan, the more confusing it gets and the more 
you've got to try and remember. I'm like, okay, this is what we're going after. This is what, what do we know? We know he's got this. We know he's got these guns. We know he's got that. We know they've got explosives. Okay, right. Well, let's deal with that. Great. Let's now let's get on with it. Just get on with it. And I used to have a, I used to have a ritual. I used to love in the latter days in, uh, I won't say exactly where, but a kind of a very hostile place where we were going out and we're up against suicide bombers and all this sort of stuff. I just used to, as I was getting dressed, put um, Guns and Roses on, Sweet Child of Mine. I used to blast that out and just get dressed and then, and then bang, let's go. Let's get on it. Let's do this. <laughs> you don't have to think too I love it. You, you, a lot of it's instinctive. And, what I, and you can plan and plan and plan as much as you want. You know, you can plan forever. And then as soon as you hit the ground, I guess what? It all changes. Because that, mm. that small enemy you thought was in front of you, it isn't a small enemy anymore. It's massive. And we didn't expect that. And... We can't cross that way. We can't do this. The helicopter's broke down. So it all goes out the window. So you've just got to be able to think on your feet, crisis manage, stay in control, and fall back on experience every time. Yeah. You lead. Lead with confidence. Lead If you're leading, lead with confidence. Make it look like you know what you're doing. Because if you don't know what you're doing, <laughs> nobody else is relying on you. And guess what? <laughs> Uh, look, another thing that I read which really captured my imagination was you were talking about being involved in a mission where you had to free some hostages and the moment where you saw a hostage see daylight again for the first time. Could you tell us that story? Yeah, again, I can't go to specifics for obvious reasons, but, um, yeah, we, we're up against, as you are at any time when you're up, you know, to save someone's life, save an hostage's life, you, the biggest um issue you have is not the enemy it's time it's always about time because you just don't know when they're going to do if you know the, the issue demands and all that stuff so we was up, really up against it and we didn't have a lot of leads blah blah blah, blah. anyway we, we kind of got lucky through whatever means and we got some information and we put the plan together and off we went to save and it was four it was actually four people that we were saving you know and unfortunately about Two days before we, we got the information about to launch, they'd already took one to a side and killed him. So we'd lost one, so we were down to three. So again, time was even, you know, less of a, of a, a, a sort of safety measure for us. We had to go. So we ended up going, we, we did the, we hit the target, it did the rescue, and we didn't know what to expect. You know, they were up, these were suicide bombers, these were, they didn't care, they were martyrs if they died, they didn't, so we were really up against it. We ended up hitting the target, getting into there, and I wasn't sure even if they were going to be alive, you know. So as we went in, went into the target, it was exactly described from the information that we got. In we went, bang. And as we kicked the door open, I'll never forget it. It was just, so the light came from behind me. I kicked the door open. And as I looked in, I could just see a shadow sort of kneeling to the left and two shadows to the right. And then as the light shone in, then I saw a chain, as, as they must have lifted their arms, a chain going across where they were all chained together. And I was like, whoa, I couldn't believe we'd actually, we've got them. They're alive. So we got in there, calmed them down, snipped the, uh, the chains off their hands, took them out. And as, as I walked him out, it was an oldish guy as well, you know. He'd been in captivity for three months. So as, as we come out, it, they hadn't seen light for three months. So as they came out, it was like almost those little gremlin things, you know, hey, bright light. That's what they were like as he came out. It was like, oh, mm. almost like boiling mm. water onto them. Cream, cream into the light. They were like really suffering. I was like, whoa. Not you know, not you kind of take that sort of stuff for granted. Then got got them into a little safe area, calmed them down, made them hundred percent. You're safe now. We have you in the hands of the SAS now. You you are safe. And one was Brit, one was and two were another nationality. It was I won't say exactly what, but so they were all like, wow. 
you know, couldn't believe it. And then just leading him out. And it was like, as I was leading him down the stairs, he had some paperwork that had allowed him to write little bits and pieces, thinking, you know, he'd actually wrote a little drama or play, play, play or something. And he was just cuddling like a little child. I was holding him. He was very frail. So I'm getting, leading him out, out of the building. And then the real daylight hit him. He was like, and the little tears in his eyes. And it was just quite sad. I was like leading your grandfather out or something. It was... It was an amazing feeling. It was like winning the lottery, to be honest. You don't get a feeling like that, just knowing mm. you know, that that person, and they were literally probably, I would say 12 hours, probably six hours away from being beheaded. It was... It was we oh, were, my gosh. There was an element of luck. There was an element of, you know, skill and, and work. And it took a long while to get to that stage. You know, we had people injured and all sorts of stuff along the route, but it, it was worth the risk for sure. You know, just to see that person. Amazing. Yeah. Just amazing. It was yeah, amazing. yeah. You know, one of the best things you can do is you may, you imagine being in captivity and not being allowed to go to the toilet, not being able to stand up, not being able to talk, not being able, somebody else totally controlling you. How long does that go on for? The, the torture of all that. And then all of a sudden to feel, boom, daylight, free, hands free. I can walk, I can talk, I can do. It was just, and watched him like, it was like a little wilting flower that had just been watered. You know, it was, it was wonderful. And for us, yeah. it was just another day at the office and, hey, we felt good about it. It was like, you know, they're the jobs you like to do when you say, because it's all about, the military is all about saving life and making things better. You know, not what people emphasize. Yeah. I'm guessing, though, that the the pace that you have to operate at, and it's all consuming. I mean, it would be hard to have a family and, and be part of those hardcore missions what was the thought process for you like when you eventually decided to leave was that a tough decision it, it was i think it's a natural progress you know in the in the regiment the sas it's i call it the crazy trade it's a trade this lifestyle it's a thousand mile an hour you don't know where you're going to be one day to the next and, you, and half the time you can't say where you're going to be you know you, you think you've gone away for two days and come back five months later blah blah it's mad it's crazy bang 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 and it's full on and you do get to a point where you get tired. It's like racing a car, you know. Eventually, you start to wear out a little bit. But it's a natural progress anyway. And there's younger kids coming up behind. I say kids, younger men coming up behind you and filling the slots. And, you know, so it's a, you, you go through the, the ranking system. And, and then there comes a time where you hand over the reins for all this sort of full-on um, sabre-type stuff, as we call it, the, the, the full-on missions, you know, the dangerous, hardcore stuff. And then you go out, you kind of put you out to graze where you go out and become, for me, I, I went out to Brunei as the sergeant major of the jungle school teaching jungle warfare for the last three or four years, like, you know. So I kind of sort of weaned off, and but you miss it, you crave it. And as much yeah. as you get back in there, but then, you know, it's the little devil and the angel going, you know, oh, I get back in there and do it. And then the little angel, hang on, mate, you've had your time. You might not walk away from this one, just chill out. So you kind of yeah. fighting these little demons and, um, and then you got to accept it. It's time to move. You've got to, you've got to leave. You know, and I did. I, I always say I did 17, 18 years in the SAS. I didn't. I, did, I didn't actually leave till 2015 because I stayed on as the I Readiness Reserve. Although I didn't do enough and I went into camp now again, a bit of advice or just whatever, meet the guys. But officially I didn't. So I did all the 30 odd years. You know, it's a long old time. Mm-hmm. Although it goes like that. And then, it is a long time, oh, yeah. And the scariest thing about stepping out is you take a lot for granted, you know. The, I remember coming out and thinking, wow, and I'd just gone divorced and all this stuff. And I was like, now I'm living on my own. And I'm like, hang on a minute. 
how do I get to the dentist? <laughs> I remember walking to the dentist in Herefordshire where I live and the lady on the reception says, yes, can I help you? I said, yeah, I want to see the dentist. She says, okay, have you registered? I went, what do you mean registered? <laughs> I'm filling all this paperwork in. I went, okay, I did all that. She goes, and this was like January. She says, yeah, come back in. We've got an appointment March the 12th. I went, what? I was that's two, two and a half, three months. What are you talking about? She goes, yeah. I went, no, no, I need to see him today. She goes, oh, no, no, you can't just do that. I went, no, <laughs> so these little things that, because in the army, you've got, it's there for you. The medical side's there for you. This is there for you. Your food's there. Yeah. You know, and so it was, that, that was a struggle for me, you know, and, and then all of a sudden, as, although you work your ass off and you're doing, you're paid 24 hours a day, you work 24 hours a day in the army. Now you've actually really got to get up and go and do something. And most of it's mundane, whether it's a security job or it's this. And that's hard. Like, we're used to getting up at five in the morning, go for a run, beast yourself, be, be on an operation, do this, do that, living rough. It's normal. Now, all of a sudden, you've literally got to get up, have a shower, make your own breakfast, go out the door, <laughs> turn up and clock in or tell somebody, <laughs> and you're like, what the hell is this all about? So that was all difficult. And Just like the rest of us. Yeah, 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 exactly. Which you yeah, but it's so it was, that transition after that period of time was difficult. It was it was difficult, you know, and mm. relying on people ain't the same, you know, you, and and not to be derogatory or rude, you know. If in the army, you're told right, you'll be there at six o'clock, and if you ain't there at six o'clock, you know, you you, you get punished for it. So you will be there at six o'clock. Whereas, <laughs> you know, you go right, you know, make sure it's I say to somebody, make sure you're here for seven o'clock. I'm here at seven o'clock. And it comes about four hours late, and I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, what's up? I goes, well, you're late. He goes, <laughs> Four hours, because four hours are late, four days is late. I'm like, what? And I just want to strangle. Oh, my gosh. You know, so you, it's that yes. so you can't rely on generally, not always, that's not always the case, as much as you can on sort of the, the people you, you rely on in the military. You're listening to Claiming Your Confidence with me, Katrina Blowers, and former SAS member, Billy Billingham. Up next, we're going to find out what it was really like to be a celebrity bodyguard for Brad and Angelina. You're talking about some of the possible job options afterwards, and you mentioned security is one of them, and that's certainly what a lot of people go into. You didn't just go into any security job, though. You became a celebrity bodyguard. How on earth did that happen? Well, towards the end, um, you know, once I'd sort of done the full-on jumping through windows, doing all that sort of stuff, you get a little bit more time when you're off doing training stuff. I was sort of sort of dipping my toe in the in in the water of civilian life and seeing what it was all about. And a friend of mine says, hey, I've got a job for you if you want to do it, um, to do some security. And I went, yeah, and what, who, who is it? What is it? What do you want me to do? And he says, personal security for a celebrity. I went, yeah, no worries. Who is it? And he was Tom Cruise. So he was the first one. I was doing that. So that was moonlighting. You know, I was still in the army. But, and I went out there, did it, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, yeah, that's all right. Yeah, I can kind of do this. It's a little bit low-key and slow and... The threat is somebody shooting a camera now, not shooting a gun. So, yeah, this is easy. So I kind of liked it a little bit and the pay was good. So I thought, all right, yeah. So as I sort of gone from a transition eventually of leaving, I stayed in touch with a good friend of mine, ex-regiment, who was running a company that basically supplied personal bodyguards to celebrities and all this stuff. And at that stage, he kind of sold me already to the next clients that I was going to be with. And they contacted me 
while I was still in and said, hey, we'd like you to come and work with us. And um, I said, okay, no problem, I'll do that. Eventually, that didn't quite work out. They wanted me out a year before that, and I didn't. it didn't work out. But then eventually when I left, I ended up as the head of security for uh, Brad and Angelina. Yeah. And, um, that was the first job I had, you know. It, it was, a, again, that was a weird transition of, I'd spent all my life sort of below the parapet and no one knew who we were and how never, you know, and then all of a sudden, boom, I'm on every red carpet. I'm in every magazine. I was like, what the hell is this all about? Yeah. That was weird. Super weird. Weird. Freaky. Seeing billboards of, of magazines and I'm on it. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> and again, what was funny was, and I haven't, I don't want to tell anybody this before or spoke about it, was, so I get a call and, um, it was just before I got out and I did a little job for some celebrities and I get a call saying, hey, have you been doing some Moonlight? No, 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 no. says, uh, well, I suggest you pick up Hello Magazine. And there it was. I went, oh, man, I thought, oh, shit. And I remember getting back to work. <laughs> and I, got my, I got my daughters and my wife at the time. I go, right, get down to um, WA Springs and everywhere. There's some money. Buy all the magazines. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, then, Busted. Yeah, so then, uh, you know, I had to get used to that sort of lifestyle of being in the public eye and some people as a paparazzi do. One minute I'm Scottish, then I'm this, then I'm that, then I'm MI5, then I'm CIA, then I'm, you know what they're like, they write all these stories and stuff. But you just have to put up with it, just bite the bullet, say nothing, just do your job and get on. Yeah. So a typical day for working for Brad and Angelina, what would that look like? It looked like 18 hours generally, for sure, you know, because... You're there. You're responsible for the whole of the security, the whole of the family, not just the phys- physical security. They're sort of um, how they're perceived in public, and make sure that people are not sneaking up to take them. Make sure they're looking the part. They're not doing anything wrong. So there's a lot to it. So you get up in the morning. I'd generally go up anyway, and I'd go for a run or do my training. But I'd do my training around the security that we'd have in place if we had any, and just checking they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. Then I'd check the vehicles, check the drivers. Because what I have learned, and if there's drivers out there, don't take this too personal, but all the problems I've ever had working in bodyguard world is with drivers. They've always let me down. They either think the Formula One drivers or rally drivers or they've got ears this big and they can't stop listening to what the clients are talking about and they're talking to the paparazzi or they turn up and they smell of beer or whatever it is. You know, I had nightmares dealing with them. Um, Most of them, not all of them. There are some good ones for sure. Um, so yeah, I'd do all my checks and all that sort of stuff. Then I'd make sure that the client was ready and up for breakfast, you know, get ready. We've got to be on set or we've got to be at a meeting, get all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, manage that, getting them safely from A to B for whatever it might be. Um, and while they're doing that, you know, if they got got jobs they need doing, while they're in, in meetings, I'm then doing my reconnaissance to the next location. If I could leave them on their own, if they were securing the building, I'd do that. And, and do this, do that, you know. So there's a lot going on, a lot of planning all the time, a lot more planning than in the regiment, to be honest. But also, you have to have the right demeanour. I can't be, you know, you see on films where the, the guys are straight face and curly the thing hanging out, so it's like, yeah. Mom, no, that's bullshit. Nobody <laughs> can do it like that. You have to have a rapport with people. You have to have a good demeanour. If I was your bodyguard, I'd have to know everything about you, from your dress size to what you like, what you eat, what you don't, because I have to. I need to know everything. And, that's how personal it becomes, you know. So you, you're kind of building this rapport over the early days and, and you're dealing with that through, through every single day. And then, so anyway, so then you spend all day working, whatever long that will be. And generally, if they're filming, it's, you're talking for anything from 12 to 14 hours. 
Mm. You know, then then you've got to get back to safety. They're back to safety. They're secure. The property's secure. If you're living on it, that's fine. If you're not, then you've got to make sure that's in place. So when they go to bed, you've still got two hours work doing your security again. And then I'd go and do my reconnaissance for the next day. Yeah. I couldn't trust the drivers. I'd tell the driver what we're doing. Guaranteed next morning, by the time you get down there, there's 300 fans and there's all the paparazzi. You're like, oh my gosh. So I just do it myself. So long days, long days, but enjoyable. You know, I was paid well, I was treated well. We had a great report. What I loved about the job working in the celebrity world was they respected me and I respected them. Yeah, I yeah. Security. I, and I've never had any celebrity fan thing. They're just people. Yeah, you couldn't do that. Of course you can't. And I think, you know, one thing I'd love to know is that we all from the outside looking in, we think we've got an idea of what that life might be like to live. But now that you've seen it at such close quarters, what's it like to be a celebrity with fame at that level? Is it is it just a weird, weird world? <laughs> it is a weird, weird world. You know, they've depending on how long they've been a celebrity, if, you know, let's just say they've become an A-list, which means they've done it quite a few years. They've used that life. They're used to having people blow smoke around them all the time and tell them how great they are and build this. And they're good people. They are good people. But they, 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 they come a little bit sort of um, split between reality and what is really around them, you know. They, they, they lose track. And it's not their fault. And I used yeah. to remember, you know, what really brought it on to me was, I remember sitting and talking with Brad a couple of times, and I had a night off, so I went to the pub and stuff. I come back when the pub, I'd been a, gone a little fight or whatever happened. Came back, and we were chatting the next morning. And here we go. So the way he was talking to me, so what was he like in the pub? And I thought he was taking the piss out of me. Why are you asking me stupid questions like this? It's a pub. And then realizing he probably hasn't been in a pub for twenty years because he can't. So mm. that life is. It's very. It, you know, people. It's, it's all glamour and all money, and it. Yeah, there is a lot of money. They do get glamour, but I tell you, it's a lot of hard work. And it's a, it's a very restricted lifestyle, which I would not want, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. One minute, one minute you're a king, next minute you're not such a king, you know, and the, and the mm. people out there will slaughter you. They don't really yes. care about you. They'll sell them whatever they can. I remember being on one red carpet with Angie and she looked a million dollars and the film was great. You know, all the report about was how she had chewing gum stuck on her, the bottom of her $3,000 shoes and it was just... So you got <sighs> to them against this, and they're they're trying to guard themselves. And you know, looking over your shoulder every two minutes is not a good way to live. Yeah, they're absolutely. They're doing what they do, you know, and they're good at what they do, and they, they they're good at getting messages out as well. I don't like it when they think they're all politicians for some reason. They all think they know everything, but they don't. But <laughs> you know, they are they're great people, and yeah. But it's 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 not the glamorous life you think. It never ever is. People think that working on television is glamorous too, but as you now know, it's it's actually not what it appears to be. Um, so let's let's get to that bit now about. I'd love to chat to you about your work with Merrick Watts, who has also been on this podcast and is an old colleague of mine. He has really credited you with helping him win SAS Australia and getting his mindset right. Given this podcast is all about confidence give us a little bit of an insight into what you told him and how you helped him and mentally how do you get through something like that when you've never done anything as physically I think the physical thing is one thing but it is it all just comes down to your your mind at the end of the day doesn't it yeah the physical the physical thing the physical part is if you see like a car the physical part is the body of the car the thing that's going to get you from A to B is the engine. The engine's your mind. 
And it's as simple as that. Going back to Merrick and everybody else that came on there, you know, it doesn't matter how long they were there. They were all, and I'm not just saying this, they, they were brilliant. Anybody who's got the balls anyway to come forward and have a go at that, put your, yourself on that pedestal. You've got to admire them, you know. Um, how did I help Merrick? I, I don't know if I did. I, I think maybe I did. I helped him by telling the truth. Which are, we live in this world now where we're scared to tell the truth and tell people the truth. And people don't like the truth. None of us do. I don't. But it's, you know, when you get it, you go, okay, I'll, all I do is that. I'll listen and see what I need to change and work it out. So being told the truth, because that's what we do. We're brutal. You know, you ain't as good as you are. You ain't what you think you are. Blah, blah, blah. Not to be nasty. Sometimes it's good positive stuff. So the first thing was telling the truth. This is who you are. Though this is what you think you are. How about you prove this? How about you do that? And he took it all, all and went, okay, great. Because no one's been talked to like that before, you know? And we see something that yeah. we don't. Yep. So what we do is we kind of, not to be asked, we peel you back to who are you? Who actually are you? Because we've all got a front. We all want to look good on camera. We all want to talk. Right? We all Get rid of that. We get rid of that straight away. And we get right into who are you? And every one of us have got a dark side and things that we're afraid of, things that we're ashamed of. And we get that out of them. Once that's off your shoulders, you become a different beast. You like you can live again. You can be free again. And you can go, wow. And I think that's what we did. And with Merrick, and Merrick got to from where he did to where he did on his own merit. We just gave him some of the tools and showed him what he, he was missing. Because we could. Because it's easy from us first sitting on the outside and getting the measure of people. We've done this for years. You know, we've done it against the enemy. We've done it with our own colleagues. Because that's what we do. We live in that world where we have to know. Mm. So we know all the t- tricks of the trade or the tools to get to that point. So we get to that point pretty quickly with, our, with the students, and Merrick being one of them. So basically we told them the truth and brutal truth. And where, where did he go? You know, we, we're not there to pat you on the back. We're there to tell you where, where your faults are and what you need to strengthen up on. You know, And that's what we will say on the course. It doesn't matter if you're the fastest, the fittest. So what? Great. That's your comfort zone. Now I want to see what you like outside your comfort zone. And that's when you really get to know somebody. Get them out of what they're comfortable with. And when you talk about confidence and, and people say, yeah, you should set goals that you can achieve. Yeah, you should. But you should also set goals that you might not achieve. Because all of a sudden, because when you set a goal that you know you can achieve, you don't really give it your, your all because you know you can achieve it. You'll get there eventually. So you set a goal a little bit beyond. And you might not get all the way to that goal. But I'll tell you what, you'll be in a better position and when you started, and you'll, you'll look at yourself and go, wow, I didn't even think I could get this far. And then if you achieve that goal, you go, wow, how do you do that? Because you can do it sometimes, you know, when you push a little bit. It's funny you were saying before about, um, you know, we all have these uncomfortable things that we don't like about ourselves. And I think too often we just shove them under the rug and we like self-medicate with, you know, scrolling on Instagram or drinking whatever, drinking wine or beer or whatever. We're all just trying to avoid that uncomfortableness of just sitting with the discomfort or processing it. Uh, Do you think that's why we, so many of us don't achieve our greatness? Yeah, it's exactly that, because we're scared of failure. And, and to a degree, we should be. You know, nobody wants a clown. Every time you walk out the street, you fall over and do stupid things. But you, it's about it's about stepping out, out of your comfort zone. Be prepared to not get it right, but be prepared to get back up and go again. And don't let the fact that you didn't get it right the first time become everything in your life now. Now, yeah. forget it. So what? No one really cares. The only person that really cares is you, believe it or not. We all think somebody else is judging us, and now and again you'll get some troll or somebody might say a word, but so what? 
you know, but you've just got to, you've just got to be confident enough to go, or oh, I got that one wrong, or and at the time, be confident to stand up and say something or do something. You, it's, it's about that. It's about stepping over that that line, and it's not easy, that's for sure. You know, and you know the examples I always give is, I remember after doing. Um, a medical course, you get thrashed on a 10-week medical course to the degree where you're almost to the level of a, of a doctor. Then I ended up with doctors. I ended up on, in this faculty over a weekend test with like the best doctors in the world, all there. And the main doctor threw up a scenario and straight away in my head I had the answer. But I was so petrified because I was looking around from these are doctors. I'm not, I've only done this. And it took me, and then, then you know, I, I went, this. I just stuck my hand up and in front of all these people thought I'm going to either burn and go down in flames or I'm going to do all right here. And it's okay, so what is it? And I went, the guy's falling, he's got this, he's got tension number four, he's got this. And I went, it just came out. And I was absolutely right. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's great. You know, but it took me that. Yes. Because I'd have normally gone, I knew that. And if you have a go. So the point, yeah, yeah. don't be afraid to have a go and don't be afraid to get knocked back because we all get knocked back. And then, yeah. So don't keep don't keep uh, masking something that's bothering you. Confront it. Yep, yep. Love that advice. I love that advice. It's hard and it's icky, and I can see why most of us don't want to do it. But you're absolutely right. Beyond that is, um, you know, probably everything you've ever wanted to achieve. Now, you s- strike me as someone who probably reads a little bit. What What would be a book that you've read that you, has really stood out for you and that you recommend to other people and that's helped you on your way in your confidence journey? You ain't going to believe this, though. I've only read three books in my life. Really? Yeah. I read okay. uh, I read an autobiography by Frank Skinner. And I can't remember most of it. I only read it because he was a Midlands boy like me. I read <laughs> uh, one called Princess by a girl called Jane Sasson. Um, what? Yeah. I know. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Yes. I recommended this to somebody the other day, actually. I read it. I don't know why I read it. I think I was stuck somewhere. I, I, had, was that so, I just read it. And I'll tell you what, it was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It's a true story about a... Arabian princess. Okay. It was just, I, I, from it, I just felt, wow, open my eyes to, you know, what are things we take for granted and, and, and we just judge how easy it is to judge people. You know, because she's a princess and she's got all this, but she was living a hell of a life of torture. In, wow. In so, so that's one book and I recommend it. She's wrote two, I believe. I, I read the one, Princess, and it, it I won't go into the whole story, but it, it, it was amazing. Okay, I'm going to read that now. Jane Sasson, I think it is, and it's Princess. I'll find that and I'll link to it in the show notes so people can look it up too. Thank you. I wasn't expecting you to say that book, though, I have to say. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a great one for remembering all these quotes and all these things. I'm more of a, I just remember what I remember and what is real and what makes sense. And, you know, and putting it into action. It sounds great when you can roll off. Yeah. The one thing, the one word, that, and, and it's true, and I told you at the start was, Always a little further. That's my mantra. And that, and it's true, going back to that when I was like nine-year-old kid, the old man stood in front of me and goes, it's about always going that little further. Don't be afraid to go forward is what he was telling me. You know, have a go. Go forward. If you get it wrong, learn from it. Don't make the same mistake. It's not a problem. It's a mistake. It becomes a problem when you keep repeating it. Ah, that's great. But the weird thing about this, Katrina, and this is gospel truth, when I joined the SAS 20-some-odd, 30 years later, whatever it was, from that nine, 20-some-odd years later, part of our sort of uh, our prayer is always, we will always go that little bit further, over that glimmering blue mountain, over that raging sea. 
which is like the regiment, we will go and to achieve that mission. And I couldn't believe it when I, I was like, wow. And that's the reason I kept that. So all I do, all my things are alf, always a little firm. That's amazing. That's a goosebump moment. Um, look, I'd love to know, what do you do for pure joy, something that's got no outcome attached to it? Honestly, again, old cliche, life is short and it really is. And I, I know that because I've seen so many people not able to be where I am. And the thing I really, I really, I relax and love is my kids, my grandkids, and my dog, and my wife. Mm. If I've got time, that's all I want to do. I just want to be with them, watch the kids playing and then doing crazy cheeky stuff and having fun with it, my daughters and my son and, and my wife. What kind of dog do you have? I have an uh, English uh, bulldog. Oh, beautiful. He's really, you got to look him up. He's on Instagram, Alf's Adventures. He's awesome. <laughs> he travels everywhere with us. <laughs> of course, he's an Instagram star. Uh, and I guess for you, given you are branching out into so many new career opportunities, it, it, like your life is just evolving constantly, what are you d- working on right now in yourself, uh, in your own confidence journey? I, I think if I'm honest, what I'm working on is in the next five years, kicking back and relaxing and having more time not traveling and slowing down a little bit and watching the grandkids grow up because what I, as I, as my kids grow up, I wasn't the best father. And, and I blame myself for it, of course, but it was the life I was on. I was always away on operations. So I didn't get a chance to watch them grow up. So I want to now be the father to the grandkids. And every time I'm home, I'm with them all the time. I watch them grow up, you know. So mm. I'm aiming to that in five, five years or less to be in that position where I can comfortably be around with my family and chill out. And, you know, I don't have any great, I, I'm one of these people if next week, you know, how would they do getting into TV? I, I got into TV by aiming for someone else and that came along. That's why I always say aim for something, go for it. And who knows what comes next? You know, then I got into this, then I got into that. So on this five year journey where I'm just going to enjoy it and whatever comes, if I like it, I'll try it. You know, I don't intend to be in TV yeah. all the time. I don't intend to be some celebrity. I don't intend to be, but I'm going on that journey and I'm, I'm, whatever comes on that journey in the next five years, I will embrace and enjoy, you know, my aim, my end game. Is I just love it. Chill. So to, to just enjoy it before it's too late, you know, <laughs> I, I want to enjoy it. Oh gosh. I really enjoyed our chat today. Thank you so much for talking to me. It's been like a lot of laughs. <laughs> well, that, that, that's life, isn't it? Let me, let's make it a laugh. There's a lot of bloody misery out there at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Katrina, I always say, right, no matter how dark it gets or whatever the problems are, there's always an option. I don't care what you say. And it's generally the option you want is the hardest option or the least, but it's an option. Mm. Just go for it. Because you have an option to be sad and be miserable and wait for the pity part of yourself or get off your ass and go, you know what? No one else is going to do it. I'm going to do it. So that's me. Stay connected by following Claiming Your Confidence or me, Katrina Blowers, on Instagram. For more information on this or other episodes, head to katrinablowers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and make sure you share it with anyone you think would benefit from a confidence pick-me-up. Claiming Your Confidence is created and produced by me, Katrina Blowers. Audio thanks to Turn. Term 6 podcast productions. I hope you're having a great week. Thank you for listening to Claiming Your Confidence.